Hey, it's Jordan. Joining me now is, is the humanist himself, uh, Mike Figueredo from Humanist Report on YouTube. And uh, you were nice enough uh, last year to have me on to talk about Flint and some other things. So glad to have you on. Uh, you know, I, I kind of want to start. There's so much to talk about. But is it right. just me or is the media like unofficially working as public relations for Kamala Harris? It kind of seems to be that way, just just a little bit, you know, um, when you when you factor into consideration that they're doing CNN specifically is doing a town hall just for her in Iowa, kind of an important state. It's the first uh, primary state. That's big. Um, and also when you consider the fact that MSNBC actually hired Kamala Harris's sister, you know, there's there's some cause for concern. She's definitely the media's darling right now. And I can see why that's the case, because one, I mean, she's charismatic. I don't think anybody would deny that. So, I mean, you you kind of are drawn to these people just instinctively. But also she's kind of the establishment's darling. She has been the person who it seems as if they've anointed up till this point. I mean, at first we thought maybe that was Beto O'Rourke and they've kind of shifted back and forth between who it seems like they're going to go with. But I mean, Kamala Harris does seem to be the one. So yeah, I, I do think it's safe to say that she is the media's darling. And when Bernie Sanders announces inevitably, compare the coverage that he gets to hers and it's not even going to be close. Well, as a viewer, uh, not that I, I doubt you're watching CNN much, but as a viewer, don't you think, you know, it would be important for you to know when they're covering Kamala Harris, that Time Warner, who as of last year was CNN's parent company, uh, is Kamala Harris's larger, largest contributor. To be clear, for the people who are going to come after me, individuals from Time Warner. So uh, in 2016, when she ran for California Senate, uh, individuals working for Time Warner uh, donated $127,000 to her Senate campaign. Not a small chunk of change. So when you look at her uh, donor sheet, that's number one. And, you know, I did the math. I, I highly doubt 639 Time Warner employees each donated $200. I'm pretty sure it was heavy hitting executives, senior leadership, because 127000 that's a lot. You don't think that's kind of odd that that's her top donor, that company, meaning the individuals who work for it. She gets a town hall the day after she announces, I'm still waiting for a town hall Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, even yeah. Kirsten, even Kirsten Gillibrand, Julian Castro. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just a matter of, you know, is this something that they should disclose? Absolutely. And to your point about it being individual donors, I think that David Dole of the Rational National made a phenomenal point about this, that just because they're not taking corporate PAC money doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't still going to be issues there because you're going to attend these cocktail parties with people and do these fundraisers where they're all going to donate, you know, a relatively small amount, $200. That's a lot of money to you and I, but to these millionaires, that's not that much money. In fact, it's, it's nothing to them, but I mean, you're still in their circles, you know, you're still talking with them and there's still that conflict of interest, that cultivation of bias, you know, if you're in these limousine liberal circles, so it's still an issue. And yeah, I mean, like you said, even with Kirsten Gillibrand, not a fan of her. I know you're not a fan of her. But at the same time, you think that if they want to appear neutral, right? I mean, objectivity is the real goal. But if you want to at least appear neutral, then you should try to give equal time to the serious candidates. And lover or hater, Kirsten Gillibrand is a serious candidate. I do think that Julian Castro is a fairly serious candidate. Tulsi Gabbard is definitely a serious candidate. Elizabeth Warren 
is I think probably the most serious candidate who's announced. So it's odd that they haven't done this town hall for her. And look, maybe they will. But I mean, to just out of the gate say, oh, she announced there's a town hall. I think that 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 just speaks to, you know, um, the corporate media's bias. And it shows you if you're a candidate that can get that reaction from corporate media, then that says something about you. It says that you're probably not looking out for the people. And and I'd love to know what your thought you think. Uh, I hate to even have to put this as a disclaimer, but these days you have to. Obviously, I don't care uh, that she's black. I don't care that she's a woman. I don't care, really. I just care that she's running for president. But when I heard her speech in Oakland, which I thought was a really good speech, to tell you the truth, yeah, it did remind me a little bit of Barack Obama circa, circa 2007. And I'll tell you why. She was talking in very uh, grandiose terms about you know, common ground, we're already standing on common ground. And it had these very similar tones to Obama. You know, there's no red America, there's no blue America, and there's there's just the United States. And there wasn't a lot of actual policy or substance. It was more just inspired, grandiose talk about uh, bringing everybody together and our values. And it reminded me a lot of Barack Obama, because frankly, it's it's not like Hillary Clinton was uh, talking this way. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you heard her speak, uh, we'll get into the policy, but... Do you see similarities, uh, you know, with basically that kind of, um, you know, makes it look like it's very progressive, but in in practice, maybe not so? Yeah, I um, I saw similarities not only to Obama, but Bill Clinton, because Bill Clinton, if you watch his speeches, he was also very charismatic. He was a speaker. And even though he was a complete bullshitter, he did come off as someone who just seemed like an average person, you know. Um, so yeah, and I won't say that I don't care that she's a black woman. I do think that that's awesome. I love that we're at a time now to where we can have such a diverse field, you know, um, people who are gay running for president. I think that's great. But the point is that the policies are always going to be more important because I wouldn't vote for someone who's a woman of color who's Republican because the policies are abhorrent, right? right. So, I mean, I could, I could put those two things aside. I think we have to disaggregate you know, the identity, because sure, that matters. I mean, I, I, I meant I don't care as far as like, I'm not making a comparison oh, to Obama right, right. based on race. Because exactly, if you say exactly. anything about Kamala Harris, you're racist, you're sexist. And if I say that she reminds me of Obama, I mean, they're going to, you know, <laughs> dub me as that. So that's what I meant. But continue. Right, right. No, that makes sense. No, and Obama was the last president and he was incredibly charismatic, you know. So um, I, I'm not even worried about because there's so many bad faith liberal actors that we saw back in 2016 that we already know what they're going to do. They're going to try to weaponize someone's identity to make sure that your criticism seems as if it's more nefarious than it is in actuality. But um, I think that progressives have gotten a lot more savvy over the last couple of years knowing about, you know, these establishment hacks and what they intend to do. But yeah, I, I agree with you for the most part. Um, I do see Obama. I see Clinton when I look at Kamala Harris because she, I mean, she's charismatic. You know, if, if you can speak in a way that sounds really nice when you're not saying anything too substantive, that is a quality of previous presidents, you know, uh, especially charismatic ones like Bill Clinton and Obama. So, yeah, I, I do see what you see there. And I'd like to ask you, because it's really interesting to me, when it was Bernie Sanders proposing Medicare for all, uh, free public college, these kinds of things. Totally, totally uh, non-starter. It's radical. These things will never happen. But I don't hear that talk about Kamala Harris from the same Democrats who said that about Bernie Sanders. They say, oh, you know, she's taking the pulse of America and she's so great. I mean, literally people that 
we're saying Bernie Sanders is just not pragmatic, not practical, are cheering on Kamala Harris. So I'm thinking it's one of two things. Number one, they know she's not actually going to do that, and it's just all kind of window dressing. Or number two, it's really not so much about the policy as it is they are deathly, deathly, excuse me, not about the person. It, they're deathly afraid of Bernie Sanders because mm-hmm. they know, I mean, the consultant's fees might go down, right, tighter regulation. Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, it seems a lot of people like Kamala when they didn't like the same things coming from Bernie. Yeah, and the same is true for AOC. A lot of people who hate Bernie love AOC when they're talking about the same things. You know, um, I put out a tweet recently about how all of these people who are standing for Kamala Harris or any of the establishment wing, you know, Julian Castro, Kirsten Gillibrand, they have to come to grips with the fact that their favorite candidate copied Bernie Sanders. He completely set the stage for the 2020 Democratic Party primary. Love him or hate him, that's an objective fact that they have to come to grips with. So um, he popularized these policies, and now there, there's this idea that, oh, well, you got what you want, Bernie. You have everyone talking about these issues, so why don't you just drop out and let them run? I mean, nobody's explicitly said this, right? But, I mean, this is the overall implication. It's kind of what is... Um, I don't know. I just Maybe I'm a little bit too cynical, but that's what I feel as if they're kind of alluding to and what they hope, you know? Um, but in reality, these... Candidates who are talking about Medicare for all, they only recently came around to it. I think it's more just um, smarter for us, quite frankly, to go with the person who's been fighting for these things for years. But to kind of get to your question about, you know, this double standard to where, oh, all of a sudden Medicare for all isn't a crazy idea. It just really speaks to them paying deference to anyone from the establishment, because if you're from the establishment, you're just automatically assumed to be more reasonable, more practical, more pragmatic in the actual policymaking approach. So if she says Medicare for all, maybe, you know, they're they're applying their own definition of what that means. Oh, maybe it just means expanding access. Maybe she doesn't mean free at the point of service. I don't know what's in their minds, but it's absolutely weird. And I think it just speaks to kind of this visceral bias that people in the mainstream media has. And I also think that it illustrates this civil war that's been going on within the Democratic Party, where you have people on our side who are on the progressive left. You know, we're fighting for people like Bernie Sanders and AOC, not because we love them, And there's this cult of personality, but because of their policies, I couldn't care less about the person. You know, you can put a stuffed animal in Bernie's position with, you know, a sign that says all the policies. I vote for that stuffed animal. I don't give a shit. It's about the policies. But for them, on the establishment side, it's not really about the policies. It's simply about maintaining the status quo. And if they can get one of their team members in, then that's all that they really care about. So I think that that's what it's about. They just they don't want the progressive left to get a win. And. It's obvious it's because, you know, Bernie Sanders threatens the donor class. Kamala Harris may be talking about Medicare for all, but we all know that she doesn't pose a real threat to the donor class. I mean, Obama was talking about a public option, Mm. you know, so it's just I think that they just kind of give this um, they pay deference and uh, fealty to these candidates who are saying things that sound progressive because they know that they're bullshitting. And uh, last question on Kamala, you know. You said you said the word cynical, and I think honestly, the problem is we haven't been cynical enough. I mean, I like many people got hoodwinked by Barack Obama, who promised to yeah. heal the world and all that, and maybe he meant it, and then just came in office and it didn't happen. But let, 
I don't think it's radical to ask if she's always been for Medicare for all. If, you know, she said, I, I feel strongly about this. She said during the debate, well, I don't, I've spoken with people in California politics. She said nothing when the bill was going through California for single That's payer, such a great point. For single payer in California. And she was running for Senate. So it seems to me, uh, yes, you're not running for California Senate. You're running for federal. But you would be leading and urging that. I mean, nobody believes that if Nancy Pelosi, the most powerful politician from California, wants Medicare for all, it wouldn't go through in California. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of behind the scenes puppet master mastery that goes on. So I say, all right, you, you signed on when, when Bernie uh, moved the needle, but you said nothing during the California primary. And it goes to the broader um, issue. Kirsten Gillibrand is now a Johnny-come-lately progressive. Cory, <laughs> Cory, Cory Booker, all of a sudden, no corporate PAC money. Uh, like, should, is it, is it uh, you know, the establishment says, well, people could evolve. What are your thoughts on evolution versus political calculation? Um, well, I think that we have to be savvy enough to realize what policies are politically expedient. Medicare for all is... A politically expedient position right now you're not going to make it through a democratic party primary if you don't back medicare for all that's just a fact now because bernie sanders and progressives like aoc they've moved the needle and really shifted the overton window at least in the left sphere the center left to the left sphere to where if you don't back it you're not viable so they know this they know that there are a certain um number of things that they've got to tell us in order to be at least minimally viable Joe Biden, he's not saying it. I think he's going to faceplant pretty quickly. But, you know, I, I suck at predictions, so I shouldn't say that and give him a boost inadvertently. But, um, yeah, I think that evolution in and of itself is really important, right? We should always applaud people when they evolve because we all evolve. Like, I'm constantly evolving, you know? Um, we're all constantly evolving. Nobody is this static being to where we, we choose these policy ideas and then we stick with it forever. We're always changing with new information, but there's a difference between evolving and there's a difference between being a leader and having the foresight to be on the right side of history from the beginning. So, for example, Bernie Sanders, he was talking about Medicare for all before you and I were born. So, you know, I'm glad like I welcome the evolution of Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris. If they want to get on board and fight for Medicare for all, they're great allies in the Senate if they truly would fight for it. But in terms of you evolving last year and now willing to lead on that issue, I just don't buy it and nobody should buy it. And getting back to the uh, subject of cynicism, we're cynical because like for millennials, Obama was my very first vote. I believed in him and I was betrayed, you know? Um, so our very first exposure to politics was betrayal, you know? And maybe that's controversial to say, but I was utterly disappointed in Obama and I still voted for him twice because I convinced myself that well you know Mitt Romney's terrible and Obama I just know that he will bring about change if he doesn't have to fight for re-election no he moved to the right in the second term you know so um we just have to be realistic about the situation welcome aboard I'm glad you're supporting Medicare for all but you're not ready to lead on this. And Kamala Harris demonstrated that when she flipped less than 24 hours after unequivocally endorsing Medicare for all. So it's just, you know, you can't lead. Simple mm -hmm. as that. And I also think, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not about, it, it is about, okay, you're evolving, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, but do I really have faith you're not going to evolve 
once more when you become president uh, and the donors come calling and this and that. That's how you get people like Barack Obama, who, you know, public option, public option, move to a Republican health care plan hatched out of the Heritage Foundation. So that's mm-hmm. the problem. You don't have a track record of consistency where you fought for this when it wasn't politically advantageous, when it was politically courageous. So uh, I want to get to Bernie for a second because he hasn't announced yet. Uh, I think as far as I know, uh, Part of that reason is because they're still trying to get the campaign infrastructure set up for a long time. I think he wanted Jeff Weaver to be the manager. And when he finally relented on that, uh, you know, you have to put things together with a new campaign manager. Saying with, with that said, not because I'm a Bernie bro, but looking at political strategy, I think the losing there's two arguments you can make at Trump. One, he's the Antichrist and he's un-American. And one is he's a fraud. I think Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton tried to make the Antichrist, he's un-American, which he is. I mean, he's definitely doing things that has never been done and are Islamophobic, uh, anti, uh, anti-gay, uh, racist, misogynist, the whole nine. But to actually sway people in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, uh, and I would say Indiana and Iowa and, and those places, I, I, I think you need a candidate that's going to point out, hey, look at all these closed-down factories. What, what happened with that? And to me, Bernie is the only one who could credibly do that because Bernie has the pulse, has always had the pulse of those bread, uh, bread table issues. He's going to show those Rust Belt voters, hey, you know, you got a con man who, who hoodwinked you. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because to me, that's the main argument to win back those states. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I've learned something in 2016 that that's never underestimate your opponent. So. Bernie Sanders, you know, looking at this, I think that if anyone's going to beat Trump, it's going to be Bernie Sanders. Um, I think he just has the best shot because he has a message that one is anti-establishment, which we're still in this anti-establishment era in American politics so where the status quo hasn't worked. So people want something different. But at the same time, I've been very cautious about this because. Donald Trump, I mean, Democrats really, the extent to which they fucked up in 2016 can never be, you know, overstated. Donald Trump, as a candidate back then, was easier to beat than he will be now. And I say that not knowing what the Mueller investigation will conclude. I say that not knowing if he'll even fucking be in office in 2020, right? But the way that people think is they're always, the rational, self-interested voter is always going to go with what they know rather than what they don't know. Right. So they don't like Trump, but they already know what to expect from Donald Trump versus someone else. So Bernie Sanders is the person who I think would be the best bet to go against him because they know that even if Donald Trump may have these mean tweets and whatnot, if they go with someone like Kamala Harris, they don't really know what to expect. They can expect more status quo, and at least Donald Trump isn't the status quo, right? So either way, it's going to be difficult. We have to fight really hard. But if you're just going out of electability, all the polls show Bernie Sanders, well, at least in 2016, we don't necessarily know yet, although recent polls do indicate that he still would, you know, defeat Trump. But Bernie Sanders is the best bet. And if you put up someone like Joe Biden, I just don't think that he's going to excite anyone. I don't think that that will be enough to overcome widespread political apathy. Like, you need a political revolution. You need a Reagan-esque revolution, but on the left, where we just kind of change the dynamic. And Bernie's the only one who I feel is capable of doing that. And we're not going to get this opportunity again for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know when we're going to have another Bernie come along. We have Bernie's, you know, in Congress, 
but are they going to want to run? You know, it's we have this unique opportunity to where we have to do it. We have to go with Bernie right now because if we actually do want to defeat Trump, then the only thing that actually defeats the rise of a right-wing fascist is a left-wing populist. We're seeing this everywhere, right? I mean, look at Brazil. Bolsonaro won, but we all know that had Lula not been imprisoned, he would have defeated Bolsonaro, you know? So it's like the antidote is clear, and this is around the world. It's you need a left-wing populist because these right-wing demagogues, they rise up due to widespread political apathy and desperation. And the only thing that can stop that is a Bernie. Now, with that being said, again, Bernie is different, right? And he's not different in the sense that we don't know who he is and that he's not the most popular politician in the country. I'm saying he'd be different for voters because we know what to expect with Trump, whereas we don't know what to expect with Bernie. Whereas in 2016, if it was Bernie versus Trump, well, either way, we're getting someone who we don't expect. So it's going to be difficult either way. But if you want to roll the dice with a corporate Democrat, I just think that's that's really risky. It's really risky. And with the Supreme Court possibly going conservative, like a, a really strong majority, 6-3, like we can't risk it. Like we have to nominate someone like Bernie who has the best chance to beat Trump. So I, I, I just feel like, you know, I, I read this article from um, Amber Frost of Chapo Trap House that resonated with me. She said, it's Bernie, bitch. He's the only, you know, he's the only uh, game in town. So just realize that this is the moment that we have that we're going to look back on and wish we took action and we're on the right side of history here. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, uh, this is airing Sunday, so by that time, mm-hmm. uh, as we speak, uh, Tulsi Gabbard is doing her formal uh, kickoff in Hawaii, I believe, Saturday. So uh, obviously uh, there's been a political story that things were kind of a mess in her campaign. I read it. I think 75% of it might be bullshit, but whatever. I think so, too. Her, her campaign, I mean, a lot of grassroots campaign are chaotic in the beginning, so I don't really put a lot of stock in that. What I do put stock in is she, uh, if Bernie runs, uh, I think she's a strong addition to the field. Uh, she definitely has some things to answer for, which I know you've talked about with your audience. But I'd like to know what you think overall, uh, in addition to the things she needs to answer for, what Bernie brought to the table domestically. So... There would be no Medicare for all polling at 70 percent without Bernie Sanders campaign. That's Mm -hmm. just a fact. Uh, I think Tulsi Gabbard can bring that in terms of uh, the regime change argument, uh, our endless military industrial complex. I think a lot of people agree with her, but they don't see a lot of talk about that in the news. Uh, Mm -hmm. What do you think she could bring to the table and your other thoughts as far as, you know, she does have some answering to do. I I'm I'll be clear, like, obviously, uh, I feel differently. I'm not I'm not gay, but. I thought her video was heartfelt, it seemed, but mm-hmm. I'd like to know what your thoughts are and overall what she could bring to the table uh, on a debate stage. Yeah, I think that she would um, really set the bar in terms of um, anti-regime change rhetoric. Now, with that being said, I don't I don't know all of her foreign policy, right? Like, I want to hear more about drones. I want to hear about Israel-Palestine. I want to hear about certain things, but we all know that Bernie Sanders there's much to be desired when it comes to foreign policy for himself when it comes to Israel-Palestine, even though he's kind of moved further. So I think that Tulsi Gabbard... And sorry to interrupt you, but Mm -hmm. keeping it real, uh, I think Bernie's answer on the Venezuela uh, attempted coup wasn't so strong either. Right. Tulsi's was better. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I I think that for someone to be very vehemently anti-imperialist, regardless of what, you know, is in her past record and whatnot, just... To have that on the debate stage, I think that that will be really valuable. And one thing that I want to emphasize, um, because we've both kind of talked about our criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard, 
it's not like we are criticizing her for nefarious reasons. We've criticized Bernie Sanders as well. The reason why I criticize Tulsi is because I want her to be a stronger candidate and address these criticisms because in the event we allow these things to go, you know, sweep it under the rug then it could manifest itself in a really more dangerous way, like in the general election. Um, and it's about building them up, not breaking them down, because either one, Tulsi or Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, they all could be the other's VP. So it's about building these candidates up and improving them, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I think that Tulsi Gabbard, if she really, if she picks like this pet issue of, you know, anti-imperialism, I think that that would be really refreshing to hear on a debate stage because... For the most part, we've seen a really strong shift to the right when it comes to the Democratic Party. And I don't know what, you know, the the establishment candidates, the Kirstens, the Kamalas, you know, um, the Corys, I don't know what they're going to say about this. So if we can have someone who's kind of setting the bar pretty high in terms of just strongly, at least in rhetoric, being anti-imperialist, I think that could be incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I think she's a great candidate. Am I worried that, you know, progressives will split the vote? A little bit. I want us to have a plurality, so I want to consolidate votes. But with that being said, I'm not undemocratic, and I'm not going to be like those neoliberals who are like, fall in line behind Hillary, you know, but with Bernie. I think that if you want to run uh, and you're not a billionaire, then run, you know. But, um, yeah, I, I think that Tulsi, she does have a lot to offer in terms of anti-imperialism, and she's a vet. So she actually does have that street cred that all the other candidates don't have because she's seen war firsthand. And I think that that could resonate with people. And I also think, um, I mean, it's kind of possible she could attract some of the Ron Paul wing uh, of the libertarian yeah. of the libertarian base. Uh, they probably don't agree with her and the Bernie wing on, on all the domestic issues. But Tulsi Gabbard talks a lot like Ron Paul, only you know less of a crankhead and grumpy uh, as far as regime change and the never-ending wars. So I, I think she can pick up uh, some of those votes. I, I want to ask you about Trump because, I mean, I kind of cover the Russia stuff from the point of view of everybody's lost their damn mind. Uh, I think mm -hmm. I've always said I'm for the investigation. Let's see what it brings. I, I said even when I was at the Young Turks, I mean, I could place my life on the fact that he'll find some form of money laundering. I mean, that's oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a given. But I never thought there was any like concrete evidence that because when I was on the campaign trail, the actual original charge of all this RussiaGate was that Trump campaign worked with the Russian government to get those emails, like mm -hmm. to to get them and, and then give them to WikiLeaks. So I'm seeing Rachel Maddow now, literally doing segments saying <laughs> the polar vortex, uh, the Russians might use the polar vortex to like shut down our electricity and kill people. I mean, it's honestly, she's making Glenn Beck back in the day. She's, she's looking crazier than Glenn Beck with the red phone. Uh, do you think people are, you know, kind of primed for a letdown when this investigation comes out? I know you don't like predictions, but I think if mm -hmm. Mueller had something really, really damaging, it would have been his responsibility to release it by now. Yeah. Uh, look, I, um, I've said from the beginning and I haven't really changed um, that I am more than willing to accept the evidence. If he comes forward with, like, you know, treason charges, then I'll be like, okay, well, let's see the evidence. Um, but in terms of what I expect, I mean, pretty much what I probably could have suspected before the investigation began. Like with other countries, Donald Trump probably has some corrupt business dealings in Russia. In fact, I'd say he certainly has some corrupt business dealings in Russia. I know that they uh, were were... Um, looking into creating a Trump Tower in Moscow, and this was linked to Vladimir Putin. So sure, there's going to be business dealings. Um, in terms of collusion or treason, 
I mean, I I just don't think that that's going to be as likely. And I think people, if they really bank everything on this, then they are they're kind of. I don't want to say setting themselves up for disappointment, but they're choosing to ignore the other, like, guaranteed um, things that will stick. Like, the Emoluments Clause, to me, is 100% foolproof. Um, there's no question in my mind that he's in violation of the Emoluments Clause. And I I do think that the Mueller investigation is important, especially if it uncovers some of this corruption and these business dealings. You know, um, between Donald Trump and Russian oligarchs and potentially Vladimir Putin. But in terms of like collusion and whatnot, I think that people are they have kind of worked themselves into a frenzy because what we see in mainstream media is that this really drives ratings. It's the um, mainstream media equivalent of YouTube clickbait. Right. So it's like it, you talk about things and you realize, oh, people really like this. So you talk about it more. And, you know, sooner sooner or later, you're kind of in that you're in this situation where you have to talk about it because you created this expectation that something so big is going to happen that now you have to deliver and i'm just you know to me my thing has been look like just wait for it to be done and wait for you know the evidence to come forward if you know robert Mueller comes forward and he says here's the evidence you know this is what i found that's when you can you know take action and say okay this is definitely collusion or isn't collusion but in terms of people kind of just like trying to predict what's going to happen it's just you don't know the details yet right i think that the Mueller investigation has been phenomenal at exposing criminality with the indictments of roger stone michael flynn and whatnot and i think that's good so it's definitely been a net positive but i think that you know it's kind of being sensationalized or it is being sensationalized because it's it's just a popular story right now um so yeah i don't i don't know if people are going to be let down I, i'm not going to be let down because my expectations are I always set my expectations low, right? Because people in power always seem to get away with whatever. So even if there's some type of corruption exposed between Donald Trump and Russian oligarchs, like, will, you know, Robert Mueller want to pursue that, you know, where anyone in American government wants to pursue that? So I, I'm always expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. But if, if the Mueller investigation leads to Trump being indicted, hell yes, I'm for it. But just people need to calm down because <laughs> well, we don't know. Part of the problem that I've always had with this, besides the fact that, you know, I do think it's kind of dangerous to constantly poke the bear of, of a ex-KGB guy with nuclear weapons. Um, yeah, yeah. The other thing is, if the establishment, and I put Rachel Maddow in with Adam Schiff, I mean, they're all part of one little club, the media and the Democratic establishment, if they have been basically, you know, been at a high-octane 11 for two and a half years... And what they've been talking about and screaming about doesn't happen. I actually think that gives Trump added narrative for the election to say, I'm a, you know, the deep state tried to take me down with this cockamamie, uh, you know, collusion or whatever he calls it, a hoax. And, you know, Robert Mueller showed you it was OBS. And I think that only galvanizes his base. And I actually think it might pick off some other people that are kind of like all of this for nothing. And maybe they're giving him an unfair deal. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because I think it helps Trump if there really is no... Of course, they could find underlying things of inappropriate communication with his, his campaign. But if they don't mm -hmm. have like a smoking gun, I think it helps him uh, with his base and probably others. Um, yeah, it's, I'm kind of conflicted on this because I don't, I don't really know. Donald Trump... In terms of at least like with his base, he can spin anything like if he gets indicted, he can spin it as see, I'm proven right. You know, just because that's the way that Trump is, 
he isn't really attached to reality. What he says isn't attached to reality. And his base just eats it up either way. So I'm not necessarily too worried about him shoring up his base with this. But um, I don't know. It's hard to say with this, you know, with the situation. I guess that um, I don't know how that would help or hurt him in the event this is overblown. I do think that the media will lose credibility if, you know, these things that they've really alluded to, like treason charges, for example, don't come about. How hard will it affect their credibility? Will it affect it even, you know, more than it already is? It's hard, you know, maybe. It's just hard to say. I don't know. I guess I'm a little conflicted here, so it's difficult to give, like, a really cogent response. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you totally uh, left field about the media because... You know, to me, and I promise you I'm not talking about this for a shameless plug for people to give me money. But for me, <laughs> for me, one of the main problems, and I saw this in 2016, was we're just outmanned. I mean, there's, uh, it was basically me on, on the campaign trail as far as independent media. Uh, I rarely saw anyone from Democracy Now! or The Intercept or other places. Not because they don't care, but, it, you know, you need funding to cover a campaign mm -hmm. in the field. And I think, of course, you could cover the campaign, you know, the Jimmy Doors or you or Kyle. You don't have to be in the field. But I think that to counter the corporate propaganda that's going to be out there, uh, it's it's difficult when you have kind of this Goliath, which is corporate media, uh, but not really many uh, independent, aggressive people actually showing, no, this is what Bernie Sanders voters need and want and actually mm -hmm. interviewing them or Tulsi's voters. Like, you're not going to see that on CNN. The New York Times isn't going to yeah. do it. I can promise you. So what are your thoughts as far as, of course, it's the progressive wing versus the establishment, but I also think there's kind of that media. You need more independent media out there on the campaign trail because to me, I mean, if you th in 2016, they didn't have time to prep for Bernie, so it was all on the fly. They've had years now to prep for Bernie, and there's going to be unprecedented propaganda coming at Bernie and Tulsi and Warren and, and name, your, name your candidate. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's... Um... It's difficult because we need more independent media voices. Um, there's just not enough. Like there's what, like 15 prominent independent media people. And that's that's simply not enough. But I mean, we are outgunned. Like you said, They're, they have more resources. And also one thing that we've kind of increasing, increasingly seen over the past year or so is that the barrier to entry for independent media is increasing. So now it's the case that you can't monetize your videos until you have a thousand subscribers. Um, now it's the case that some of your videos may be demonetized. So some people may feel disincentivized and not want to talk about things like Syria. You know, so it's getting I, more I, difficult. I, I hate to interrupt you, but you should know. Five anti-war videos in a row were demonetized on Syria on my channel. Continue. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm 100% with you. And I've noticed more demonetization lately as well, although that hasn't been my biggest issue. Um, we've talked about this actually, I think, last year in February, where our channel views just fell off a cliff, like completely fell off a cliff. Um, and when you have, you know, thousands of subscribers, you should expect more than 100 views in, you know, the first couple of hours, right? But um, it's just the algorithm changes are now making it so that way independent media outlets are getting buried. Um, I mean, if you just go to YouTube's trending page, for example, do you ever see a Kyle Kalinske video? Do you ever see like one of our videos? It's always NBC News, CNN. So you're you're kind of seeing this amalgamation between, you know, the independent media space and corporate media. They've kind of intruded on our space. And that in and of itself, just people seeing it who may have felt inclined to get involved think, 
oh, well, this is, there's no way, like, what's, why am I going to waste my time? It's going to be so difficult to, you know, get involved. And even if I'm consistent and I work really hard, I could get beaten down by the algorithm and lose it all in six months. So we're kind of faced at this situation where we need more independent media, but it's getting difficult, more and more difficult to, um, to participate. And I always try to help and, you know, signal boost for all these smaller content creators because it's so difficult to get started. But at the same time, you know, long term, it's it's getting more difficult. And it, if we continue on this trajectory, then, you know, it's going to be even more difficult. You know, so it's I don't know, man, it's tough. It's a difficult situation right now. Well, it's interesting you said that because I'm one of those smaller people because I had to start all over. And what's funny is, you know, uh, d we've done fairly well. I mean, I'm less than a year, and we're we're about to hit twenty seven thousand subscribers. But uh, this is great. Yeah, and it would have been way more knowing how YouTube works if we weren't being suppressed. But you know, when I go on Jimmy's show, or I had Jimmy on, or I've had, or I've gone on somewhere uh, that's a uh, bigger name or more subscribers, all of a sudden you have like two or three thousand more subscribers in like two days. And I look at the comments, and it's all like, I had no idea you were back. <laughs> I had no idea mm -hmm. this even existed. And I look at that and it's like, wow, you know, how do you, comp how do you compete if it's not that the content, there's anything wrong with the content, but people don't know it exists. So I think it's a big problem. And I actually mm -hmm. hope uh, more so that people start coming together in creative ways. And like you said, signal boosting. I mean, not only going on uh, Jimmy's show, but having folks like you and Jimmy on and this and that brings some of their audience to check out our channel. So I think it's important. Last question. You know, I see that uh, I'm biased, but I see that most of these campaigns uh, and I think Bernie's one that could also do better in here. Uh, obviously, you're looking primary to primary, but none of them are really talking about like Flint still doesn't have clean water for five years or some of these pipeline fights. You look at uh, Bayou Bridge down in Louisiana. Mountain Valley Pipeline, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, Line 3. I mean, the list goes on. Some of these do domestic, local, progressive issues that I think if candidates started talking about, not, not, be, not just to like get people in who are interested or activists, but actually show you're not just focused on big picture. You're focused on the day-to-day. -day. Uh, I don't really see much talk about it. I never see the DNC send out emails about anything of substance other than Russia. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, whether it's Bernie or whomever else? Like, what are some issues you want to see these candidates talking about on the ground level? Oh, man, there's a lot. I mean, obviously, Flint, Michigan is one of them. We all have local issues that... Um, that need to be addressed in terms of like a national candidate dealing with that. I would love to see them really um, focus on certain local issues that really have a big impact and kind of speak to the state of the country. Flint, Michigan is a fantastic example, but there's more, you know, than that. But it's part of the reason why I think that there needs to be like a really nationwide broad coalition of progressives so we can have progressives in elected offices like on the ground doing things about you know certain situations not because you know um you have to you you have to be locally there you know to understand it one not just because we we can't just have bernie sanders and like aoc be the only two people talking about these issues so like for example namiki Kant, i brought her on my show she's running for new york city public advocate you know we need people around the country who are elevating 
you know, these issues and raising awareness about these issues. Um, we need to work with diverse, you know, groups. We need to talk to people of color in their communities, LGBTQ organizations, and see what issues are affecting them specifically. So it not only needs to be like, you know, a nationwide focus to really show that this isn't just about, you know, a couple issues, Medicare for all, Wall Street, it, that it is about like individual people, but we need, um, we need other people to get involved as well. So I really hope that what Bernie Sanders does is he kind of started to do this. Like he brought in Simone Sanders um, back in 2016 to start talking about criminal justice reform in the private prison system. I hope that he does this, but for like a range of different issues and whatnot and local issues and someone who, you know, can um, spread word about Flint, Michigan, because yeah, it's, it's tough, right? There's so many issues. It's difficult to select, but in the process of looking at all of these national issues, because that's what's easier, these local issues kind of get ignored. And, you know, it's it's an unfortunate reality of us just trying to do a million things at once. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time, man. Everybody could check you out at the Humanist Report. Obviously, you have a Patreon and all that good stuff. All that good stuff. Yeah, it's all on humanistreport.com. Cool, man. Thanks for taking the time, and I will see you next time I am in Portland. All right. Thank you, brother. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care. Take care.